Hi, it's Bob Terrio here, and normally we would start off with some clever editing leading into the music and we'd be away with the show. But in this case, we found out after we recorded the show that there would be a celebration of life for Larry Breed on September the 12th at 1 o'clock in the afternoon uh, in Mountain View, California at the Computer History Museum. And we'll also include a link if you'd like to attend virtually. Uh, Larry was one of the pioneers of APL. He was one of the first implementers. And uh, we talked a little bit about his life in uh, the second episode of ArrayCast. So uh, because we didn't want to miss this opportunity to let you know about this celebration of life for Larry Breed, we thought we would start the show off this way. And now, on with the show. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. My name is Connor. I'm your host for today, and we're going to go around and do quick introductions. We've got one short announcement, and then we'll hop into the topic for today's episode. We'll start with Stephen, then go to Bob, and then go to Adam. Hi, I'm Stephen Taylor. I'm an APL and a Q programmer, and currently the KX librarian. And I'm Bob Terrio. I'm a J enthusiast, and I've been doing this for, I keep saying 19 years. It's actually 20 now. Um, and uh, I'm just part of this podcast. Probably means that I, Adam Potsevsky, have been doing APL for eight years by now, or professionally for Dialect Limited. And my name is Connor. I'm a C++ developer and a huge Ray programming language fan. And I'm super excited about today's topic. And happy 20th J birthday to you, Bob. I, I assume it must have been recently if you went from 19 to 20. Yeah, it uh, was. I think it was the summer of 2001. All right, so let's uh, let's do the one announcement, and then we'll hop into the episode. Yeah, I woke up this morning, um, which was good because I'm on a podcast. Um, and I was looking at my my YouTube and Tangent Storm, who you may recognize if you followed Jay for a while. It's Michael Wallace. He does a lot of videos. He started doing a Twitch, a live stream, an hour every morning, Eastern time. So from 8 to 9 in the morning, he does a live uh, Twitch stream of programming Jay. And he's currently working on a, on a text editor because he wants to improve the console a bit. And it's kind of interesting. He's got everything's open source. Everything's available through GitHub. We will put the link in the show notes. But if you look under Twitch, it's Tan Tangent Storm. And if you look under YouTube, he also repeats them in uh, YouTube because I think Twitch only keeps them up for two weeks. So uh, if you want to look for past shows, he's just started just started this weekend, but it looks really interesting. And uh, and I talked to uh, well, I talked to him. I uh, texted him on the J chat, and uh, he's more than willing to uh, have us publicize it. So uh, hopefully by the time this podcast hits the air, he's still doing it, um, and you'll get a chance to see some of uh, some of his efforts. It's quite neat to see somebody uh, live programming J. Awesome, that sounds really cool, and it'll it'll be see it'll be cool to see where that goes. Uh, hopefully uh, he keeps it up. All right, so for today, we don't have a guest. We are just going to be chatting about a specific topic that I uh, brought up and I expressed interest in, and uh, everyone was super excited to talk about it. So today we're going to be talking about tacit programming, um, otherwise known as point-free programming, although I think in past episodes we've noted that there are subtle differences between the two. Um, and we're going to talk about sort of questions that I have preloaded up, um, the differences between tacit programming across the different array programming, programming languages. Um, but I guess first, let's, let's just start with a definition of what is, you know, very briefly tacit programming, 
aka point free programming. So who wants to take this one? All right, I'll nominate Adam. <laughs> and then and then Stephen and Bob can uh, uh, color in his explanation if they if they feel like it. So tested programming. I'd like to define it in in terms of the contrast with what's informally then called explicit programming. So there's a lot of overlap between programming and mathematics. Mathematical formulas, um, you always have these, these variables or names of things, and then you have some, some symbols tying them together. And that's the whole thing there. You have the names and you, and you have some operations you're doing on them or you're stating some, um, some things about them. And so too in programming, you mention names for things. It could be names of things that are not defined yet, like an argument. Um, or it could be names of, of known things. And the important thing in tested programming is that you don't state the names of the things that you're working on. Everything is expressed in terms of function application. Um, so I guess we'll get into, get into more details of how that comes out in practice. But instead of saying um, that A equals B, you would just say equals. And then the A and B are implicit, they're tacit, they understood. So I will, well, first I'll ask Stephen, Bob, do you want to add anything to that before I go on like a little mini, mini rant, uh, rant slash uh, <laughs> tangent or not tangent, but. Um... I, I'm looking forward to the rant actually. So I'm not going to say anything at all. Well, I want the rant too, but uh, uh, it, it occurs to me having been in this game a long, a long while, I've watched this as part of a, uh, I guess the move of functions becoming first-class objects. When I first started programming, you assigned uh, values to names, data variables, here's a, here's a variable and this is its value, and you define functions as a syntax for that. And they seem like two entirely different things. And then when functions become first-class objects, you just say, um, you know, this name and there's the assignment operator and it's this function. Oh, that's kind of strange. You could do that. And then it turns out that as part of this, you can assign primitive functions. So you can say plus is assigned the plus symbol. And then it turns out you can, uh, you can assign combinations of functions and values to names. And, and all of this without the syntactic notation, um, which says this is a function and these are the arguments. So that's kind of how it appears in my world. Yeah, I, I completely uh, agree that it is extremely nice to be able to just go sum equals, aka the arrow and APL plus slash, instead of having to create you know a lambda or a defund in APL, which is would be some arrow brace plus slash omega brace. You've basically, what is that, uh, five? You've reduced like the length of your function by 60% uh, because you've just omitted what I've started to call like all the ceremony, all the noise, like the the omega, the braces. That's just, that's just ceremony that you need to put there, except that in APL, you don't actually need to put it there. You can just plus slash, that's what's really important. The ceremony is never important. It's always just there because you need to get things to, I guess we don't really say compile an APL because it's an interpreted language, but you just, you have to put it there to get it to work. It's boilerplate. Yeah, boilerplate. Um, 
Uh, except I like ceremony better because boilerplate sort of implies it's like stamped out code that you copied from Stack Overflow or or um, and and ceremony. It's more indicative of the fact that it's it's just unnecessary. Like uh, it in some different version of a programming language, you might be able to like sort of leave all that stuff out, uh, which. APL and J and a lot of these array languages that have support for point free, you know, Haskell as well or Tacit, um, uh, give you the ability to do. So, so my my little mini rant is like uh, is is the story of how. So let's pause. I absolutely love uh, Tacit programming and I love combinators even more. Um, and combinators are the name outside of the array language world for what are now called trains in APL and J. Um, at one point, I knew about combinators, and then I was very confused for the longest time in APL and J by trains and hooks, and uh, it's an odd syntax that's sort of different from the rest of the language, so when you start to learn it, I was just very confused. Um, especially, I watched the this talk, I think it's been mentioned on one of the podcasts before, um, by Roger Huey, he has sort of APL in like 16 sort of functions or something like that um we'll find it and add it in the show note links but the very first one he shows is average so like this is supposed to be introducing people to like how amazing the language is and like i couldn't even understand his first example i was like what Uh, i mean it looks impressive but he was explaining it and because it's a 40 minute or 60 minute presentation with 16 uh you know examples he goes through it pretty quickly and that's supposed to be one of the easier ones um so the point being is that at least for me, when I first showed up at uh, these trains, I didn't really know uh, how to interpret them um, until I realized that they were just combinators, uh, which of all things I managed to track down someone confirming my belief that they were the same thing on a Tickle blog, uh, which is like the TCL programming language. Um, But uh, the very first time I came across a combinator was Flip in Haskell, um, which is basically the equivalent of the commute operator in APL, which is the little tilde with um, two dots on top of it. And that actually has like three different meanings now, which is why probably uh, the commute operator is my favorite glyph in all of APL because it represents three different combinators at the same time. It's constant, it's uh, it's flip, or what's also known as the C combinator, um, and then it's also dupe, I believe, Uh so yeah, it's, it's three combinators in one, which probably sounds confusing to the listener, but it's very easy to read once once you get used to it. Um, but so there's an algorithm. This is getting to like the rant p- part of my story. Uh, there's an algorithm in C++ called adjacent difference, which is a very simple algorithm. It takes a list of things that can be, uh, you know, can have a binary operation applied to them. By default, it's minus. So if you have a list of numbers, one, two, three, four, five, and you apply adjacent difference to it, it's going to subtract each of the adjacent elements uh, from each other. But the catch is that it subtracts the second, like the element on the right, or the element on the left from the element on the right. So you might think naively that adjacent difference for 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 gives you four negative ones, um, but it actually gives you, uh, it gives you five ones. Um, the positive one comes from the fact that you're going 2 minus 1, 3 minus 2, 4 minus 3, etc. The fifth one is because the way in C++ it works is it copies the first value uh, from the input sequence to be the first value of the output sequence, which is a big mistake in my opinion um, because if you end up doing adjacent difference on 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, you end up with 10, 1, 1, 1, 1. 
and in a lot of programming languages, the equivalent of this algorithm just gives you back n minus 1 elements. So you don't end up with that 10 or 1 thing. So in Haskell, they call this algorithm um, map adjacent, except uh, instead of it coming with a default binary operation, it, it doesn't come with a default. You have to specify it yourself. And so adjacent difference in Haskell is just map adjacent with uh, parenthesis minus parenthesis, which is basically, it's called a section, but it's a very, very succinct version of a lambda. So in basically two things, map adjacent plus the minus section, you have your algorithm. Except that the minus, by default, doesn't do the same behavior as the minus baked in to the C++ algorithm. It's going to go 1 minus 2, 2 minus 3, 3 minus 4, and 4 minus 5, which gives you back four negative ones. And so you go from having this beautiful map adjacent minus to having this map adjacent with now a lambda in Haskell, which, just to bore the listeners, is paren slash x arrow or x, y arrow, and then you have to manually reverse the x and y, which are your two arguments. So instead of going x minus y, which is what the section does, you have to go y minus x. So you had this really beautiful, succinct implementation of adjacent difference, but then because of this, the fact that you have to sort of rearrange the way that you're passing these two arguments to minus, it, uh, it messes it up. And then one day, you know, it's just an amazing day, I discover uh, the C combinator, which is called flip in Haskell, and all you have to do is basically pass that minus section to flip, and it automatically does the flipping of the way you're passing those arguments in. And there's absolutely nothing like this in like the C++ standard library. And when I just, this was the first time I stumbled across a combinator. I didn't know it was called a combinator. And um, that solution with the lambda is no longer tacit because uh, the lambdas are explicitly mentioning X and Y. Whereas now, because you're using the C combinator uh, or flip, you can just go map adjacent flip the minus section, and you now have a point-free solution. And uh, this was like the start of me falling in love with combinators. And... Uh, the story goes on and on, but I'll stop there. The point being that these show up all over the place and they lead to what, in my opinion, like that map adjacent flip minus is so much more elegant than the map adjacent, you know, paren slash x, y, arrow, y minus x, n paren. Um, there's so much more noise there when really the flip tells you exactly what you want to do. You just want to flip the arguments. It's, it's, it's in English communicating to you um, what you want to do. And then you might say, well, APL is so far from English. But they're, they're, like the commute operator, commute is just another word for like commutativity is, you know, the rearranging. Um, and so I'll pause there. But uh, hopefully the listeners uh, didn't get completely overwhelmed by that. But the point being is that um, I think the combinators and the tacit forms that exist in APL and J are uh, just just incredible and they lead to extremely elegant code and I'm very very jealous of other languages like these when I'm in C++ because there's not a lot of um, I think there are a couple but not to the extent that there are in APL so I'll pause I'll let folks respond and then we can we can uh, yeah Bob go ahead yeah well picking up on your your English comment what's really neat is in J it's actually called passive and that goes back to the passive voice it's actually reversing the two arguments. So instead of going active voice in, in, a, in, a, in the English language, you're going passive voice. So rather than doing something, you're having something done to you, which is I always thought was kind of interesting that they would name it that way. But it's actually the, when you reverse the two arguments, it's called passive. 
and they call, um, I think if you duplicate it, it's called uh, reflex. But, uh, but And that's all dependent. You were talking earlier about the differences. You have one symbol that can do two things. All it's based on is whether you've got two arguments or one argument. If you've got one argument, it's going to duplicate it right and left. And if you've got two arguments, it's going to swap them. And the thing I always think about when I'm thinking about those is I think it was in J4C programming languages, Henry Rich talked about it being like fitting pipes together. You know where you start, you know where you want to end up, but you've got all these tools that you can fit these pipes together. And in most languages, you don't have those kind of pipes that go down to the granular, granular level that you can actually say, oh, I just want to flip these two arguments here, and that's a pipe, and I just got that symbol, it'll do it. They, I think, try to go a little bit higher level by hiding all that, but as a result of hiding it, you don't have the control within the, the function. So I, that's what I really like about tacit programming, is you're getting right in, and you're starting to manipulate, and essentially, I guess you're composing the functions and layering them on top of each other, and at the end, you start from your your start arguments and you end up with your result and if you've layered everything all the right way in the in the through the the process it comes out the other end and it's really consistent because the people that have actually implemented the language at each stage have tested all that stuff out for you um and it's it's very powerful it's um and it, it when it comes out the other end the way you want it it's very gratifying <laughs> I really like that metaphor of uh, of the pipes, and and it made me think of what the what Connor was speaking about in in APL today is the symbol is a little frowny face or a, a tilted iris is a, a wavy line with two dots on top, but that's not actually the original symbol Iverson chose for this very functionality. It was actually a a U shaped pipe. That was the symbol he used. So I'm I'm very sure this is exactly the metaphor that Iverson had in mind. That it's 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 exactly this plumbing, and there is more plumbing than just that. There is there the T-shaped pipes where you kind of split up things or combine two things in, into one, um, and then there's this U-shaped thing which is either leading something back to itself or crossing one thing over to the other side, switching sides like this. And that I think that's very much how we think of it. And I wanted to to add that to what. Kind of was saying earlier um, about the trains being these combinators, not just the trains. Trains is one form of combining functions, but and what in APL is called operators, specifically a subset of the operators, and in J is called uh, conjunctions, and I guess we could say some of the adverbs as well. Um, or in BQN language, uh, they're called modifiers, one modifiers and two modifiers. Some of those are what you could call compositional operators. Those are, are operators that do not involve any type of computation. Rather, they only dictate, that's where the plumbing comes in. They dictate how arguments are being applied to the given function. Um, and so trains are kind of special in that for all these languages, you can only have up to two functions being combined. And trains allow you to combine three functions into a particular pattern. But other than that, the concept is the same. Yeah, one of the things that that um, I think it works perfectly with this analogy is this idea of, you know, you're building up a pipeline of and composing these pieces together. Uh, there's a, 
and I might have mentioned this before, there's a really good talk by Scott Woloshin, who's a functional programmer that primarily operates in the F-sharp community. I believe the talk is called The Power of Composition, and he introduces this idea of uh, railroad programming where he uses this example of he has three different pipes one takes an apple and then outputs a banana and the next one takes a banana and outputs an orange and you can you can plug these together and then you get a function that inputs an apple and outputs an orange if I got that correct so the banana disappears like there's a banana connecting them together but because you compose them you just see the end result and a lot of the times making use of these combinators in APL um, which I'm using that to refer to both uh, the the trains and sort of the operators. You can you can uh, manipulate functions such that where you might need to use parentheses and and sort of mix things up. You can use the the commute to sort of flip the pipe around so that you can still build up like a linear expression that you're reading from right to left. Like the example that um, I saw the other day in one of Rodrigo's videos was he was using uh, without, which I actually didn't even know. Um, it's basically the dyadic form of the tilde that you can give it, a, a, I think in this case it was a string and he wanted to remove all of a certain character from it. Um, and so it takes you know, basically like a rank one, a vector or a string on the left and then it as the left argument and then it takes a scalar or uh, I think in this case it was a scalar, but the point is, is it had two different things, and and in order to use it the way he wanted to, like you you couldn't just add it to the front of your expression, so he had to he had to use a commute, and so by doing that, you're avoiding having to put parentheses and then make your eyes skip around to how am I going to evaluate this? You just you get to start at the right, read right to left, which is backwards from how we read textbooks, but we still are used to reading things linearly, and I think. As soon as you can get past the fact that you're starting from the right-hand side, and actually that's a Western Eurocentric. There are certain, uh, you know, uh, countries and, and uh, histories that have historically read from right to left. Um, so I, I should I should take back what I said. Um, for some people, that's going to be the uh, what they what they're used to, um, and and everything else is backwards. So uh, yeah, I love that pipeline or sort of railroad uh, metaphor. Um, and yeah, it's 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 sort of like in in a way it's the opposite of lisps. Like lisps, you're always going to the most inner thing, evaluating, and then sort of going out and out and out. Whereas in APL, if you use this these combinators and tacit programming, you can you can maintain sort of a linear flow, which I find a lot easier to read than skipping around. And and you can always revert to parenthesizing if if it makes sense within it, because there are times certainly within J that you need to uh, put parentheses around uh, your your tacit because if you don't it's not going to evaluate in the right order because of the the right to left precedence at least for verbs of course um, with operators in J, it actually does the opposite. It, it goes left to right, which takes a little while to get used to, but when you actually get used to it, um, actually even makes it clearer about what you're doing when you're actually putting things together. And it's it's more convenient, too. You're not having to add a lot of extra characters. It kind of works the way you would expect, except that when you've been trained on verbs, it's not working the same way, which uh, if you really want to experience go in and and play with it a bit, you'll get what I'm saying. And if you've done J for a while, you'll understand that completely. It just, it does what you expect. But um, one of the best things I've ever done was I spent some time actually working through the J parser, because that in the end is exactly how things are evaluated. And when you start to get used to how, and it's not, it's not difficult, it's just, um, it's a process. And when you get that process ingrained in your way of looking at a J sentence, 
things become much clearer, much quicker. So maybe we should, I know right before we started hitting the record button, uh, Stephen, you were talking about sort of a little bit of history and conversations that you've had with uh, Ken Iverson on the topic. Do, maybe we want to bring that up and, and delve into that a little bit. Ken, Ken frequently used to get um, challenged by people saying that APL was too hard to read. And uh, there's kind of a standard response to that. There's like a yeah, it's harder to read a line of APL than it is a line of some more commonly used language. But the, the the standard rebuttal is, well, your brand X language isn't actually doing it very much in that line. So the the, the premise is the APL line's worth studying because there's a lot going on. And that probably corresponds to what we, we like about it. We've got a lot of stuff going on in the line, a lot happening. And you can get a, you can get a lot done with a, a single expression. So Kent's line with that, and it's kind of core to his thesis on notation as a tool of thought, was that we're confused what is difficult with what is unfamiliar. And with that, he's going back to um, say Whitehead, the mathematician's famous line about we don't need to think more, we're being told all the time to think more. Actually, we need notations which enable us to think less and at a higher level. So if you follow this line, as, as I generally have, it pushes you towards using the what we think of as the more advanced forms, the more abstract forms. An example of that would be I would commonly use in APL matrix multiplication to get the sum of them of multiplying two vectors together, even though it's a an arguably a reduced form of matrix multiplication. And I do that for two reasons. First, because the habit of using matrix multiplication would help me see other parallels and possibilities, improve my vision as to what's going on. And secondly, because I know that the interpreter writers scan the what's going on in the interpreter to see what programmers are using it for. And when we use the more advanced forms, we basically give give them more scope, more scope to find optimizations if we use them. So when I encounter tacit programming, I was thinking here's the next step where it kind of it's another jump in abstraction and so forth. And I, sh I should use this partly because it really appeals to me aesthetically. It's like, wow, I really love the idea of being able to write code which doesn't have function syntax in, doesn't have arguments in. It's like we're continuing to boil things right down to the bones. But also because I thought it, I was thinking this is going to lift my insight, my level of insight, and open up new opportunities for the interpreter writers for efficiencies. So the other week, when I asked Henry if he thought that tacit was a step too far in programming, it was kind of a loaded question. It was kind of a loaded question because um, if you if you feel as Henry does that it does go, it does go too far, it doesn't help you. I mean, with all the qualifications and the nuances. Um, that go with that, then you run up against Ken's basic premise. Um, it's not merely a question of confusing the familiar 
with the unfamiliar with the difficult. Um, in Henry's view, the tacit is actually too difficult to be practical. Most of the time, or much of the time, it doesn't help you. It's not a good way to do your coding. We should step back from the, and not always go to the most abstract, the most, the most extreme. So um, I was interested to hear that. At, at least there's other factors in there besides just getting up the level of abstraction and expressivity. If you go with Henry's line, then there are things that are not only unfamiliar, they actually are difficult and you're better off doing something an easier way. Bob, Adam, do you want to add anything before I hop in? <laughs> Yeah, well, one of the things I, I thought of in, in, in Henry's answer as well was interesting because partway through his answer, from what my recollection is, he started to say, oh, yeah, but I guess within explicit, there is tacit, and that is really true. And after he said that, over and over again as I program, I'm looking at it and going, wow, I'm halfway through this, quotes, explicit expression, and suddenly I'm dropping in these tacit verbs because they're like little chunks that I can just drop in. I know exactly what it's going to do. And it might have a Y coming in and an X, you know, an X and a Y arguments coming in. But in this one little section, it would be completely tacit and I could take it out and drop it in. So actually, I wonder whether part of what Henry's talking about is a bit of a, the fact that he didn't start out. I mean, as much as he's programmed in J, he didn't start out as a J programmer. He didn't start out as an array programmer. And possibly it's just that level of your brain being able to chunk those things into tacit, tacit may be a lot easier for somebody who has only thought tacitly. And they may have a wider scope of what their cognitive overload is at that point. And there may be a limit. I'm sure there is a limit for, for, for people. But it might not be as narrow as a person who's always programmed explicitly. And as you get used to it, you might be able to widen that out a bit. Having said that, yeah, if I put in a long string of tacit code, I have to either put in comments to explain back to myself in the future about what I've done, or it's just so obvious to me. And again, we're back to that cognitive level. If I understand it that well, I don't have to put anything in at all. But not everything I do when I'm trying to create a function I have at that level. Some of it I'm I'm sort of grasping for. And when I'm grasping for it, I might go back to it two weeks later and I'm not in the same state and it's very hard to understand. Having gone through that a couple of times, though, I do know every time I go back to it and figure it out again, I'm very less likely to have forgotten it in the future. Um, I'd like to to give a concrete example of this, which Bob just said. The fact that tested programming jumps in, even if you don't try to do it, Maybe the most basic form of tacit programming in, in API-like languages is something we all do without even thinking about it. We write plus slash for a summation. Every API-like language uses that or extremely similar syntax to do a summation. And there's actually a lot going on here. And this is tacit programming. And always was from the very first implementation of APL. Because what's happening here is the slash is, is reduced and the plus is a function that takes two arguments. And we're passing this function plus to reduce without any mention of the arguments. So when I have to write some JavaScript, 
uh, obviously you can just sum in JavaScript, but let's say we wanted to, for simplicity, to reduce over an array, over a list in JavaScript. So I would have my array dot reduce, and now I have to feed reduce the plus function. Now I know exactly what it is I want to reduce with. I want to reduce with plus. Nevertheless, I have to mention here, x comma y, right arrow, x plus y. This is an explicit definition. And you sure can write this in API as well. And, and in K as well, and in J something similar. You could write uh, open brace and then the name of an argument plus the name of the other argument, close brace, and then the slash for the reduction. But we don't do that. We don't even think about it. This is like just the tip of the and of the iceberg of of tested programming yeah it's it's honestly like while you're saying that and i've had this thought like a couple times it's that this is really just like functional programming like i want to say plus plus but it's not even it's just functional you're just programming with higher order functions functions that take functions as arguments like and even in a non-functional language or like non-first class functional language like c plus plus when you have your reduction algorithms stood accumulate um, you know, you have to pass it the the range that you're going to sum up an initial value, uh, which is if you're adding things up, usually zero. And then, uh, you know, in the in the past, well, there's there's two different things you can do. You can write a lambda, which is bracket bracket paren auto a comma auto a or uh, auto b n paren brace return a plus b semicolon n brace. It's it's just a mess. Or you can write std colon colon plus brace brace. Um, which is a built-in function object that does your summation summing for you or the fact that std accumulate comes with a default plus you can just omit it entirely but look let's pretend it doesn't come with a default like the same jump from going to have from having to write that explicit lambda with all like it, it's got every single type of brace you got your braces you got your brackets and you got your parentheses you got all three of them and you got some returns semicolons a comma in there like it's just it's the noisiest of lambdas across all the languages or you can just write, you know, std colon colon plus uh, with with two braces. Um, it's not as nice as APL, but it's the same jump of having to go what you were saying, Adam. You know, brace, you know, x plus uh, y or omega plus alpha and brace. That's that is not at all as satisfying as plus. And it's not it's not so much about like you know how nice is this to code. It's how nice is it to read later. Um, like, like who, who in their right mind would want to read all the extra noise if you could just see the plus and go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, which, yeah. And, and, and the other thing I was going to say, I, th I think this was in response maybe to what Bob was saying, was that uh, when, when you're talking about the, uh, you're writing explicit statements at the top level, but sort of tacit statements um, within that explicit statement is that, that like, I think, I think it's even, like, especially the, the fork, um, which is it's known I, I released a youtube video over the weekend uh covering a, a simple problem in 16 different languages and I, I go into detail explaining that a fork aka a train in apl or j it's known as the s prime combinator uh or the starling or the phoenix or lift m2 or a2 from haskell this thing is so fundamental um to the extent that actually the tacit form a lot of the times is easier to read, in my opinion, than the explicit form. Uh, there was this problem I was solving the other day where 
the whole problem doesn't matter, but at one point you want to take from a list of numbers the differences of uh, each element that's like, you know, k elements away. So like maybe three or four elements away. And at first I was trying to do it by doing some sort of n-wise reduction where you make little sort of sublists and then you look at the first and last element. And then I had the realization, wait a second, if I just uh, do a k minus one rotate and then subtract the original or the, the, the rotated array from the original, um, that's, that'll work. And then the question is, oh, you got to get it in that form where one list is above the other list. And I was like, wait a second, this is just a fork where the binary operation is subtraction and you have identity and then the rotate. And technically, because one of them is identity, um, that's the specialization, which is a hook that exists in, in J and not, um, and not APL, which maybe, maybe we can talk about that now because this was a comment that uh, uh, Adam had made on, on Slack. Uh, let's, let's bring up the, what, the, what is the exact comment that um, Adam said, meh, hooks are overrated. I'm throwing you under the bus, Adam. Uh, <laughs> they are just forks where the left tine is left function uh, in APL slash bacon or uh, the bracket in J with a little. And and that was in response to my comment that actually my favorite uh, forks are hooks. Okay, yeah, that's what that was in response to. So yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe we can talk about one, our hooks overrated, and two, um, and this is what really I wanted to sort of get out of this episode. Um, I don't, I haven't come to a decision on whether the hook plus cap style in J is better. Like, I assume that Iverson always put the evolved ideas and the better ideas in J because he did APL first and then he did J second, so he'd been thinking about it longer. Um, but uh, so, And maybe, Bob, you can explain sort of the cap and the hook, um, but it leads to a, a much, much... Like, there are times where in APL you can write something because you don't have hooks. Um, so you don't need to have some sort of mechanism for using a cap. Um, but we're, I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Well, I'll throw it to Bob. You can explain that, and then we can talk. Are they overrated? Which model is better? Is it APL? Is it J? Is there another model out there that we haven't discovered yet? Um, I don't have the answer, so I'll be quiet now. Okay. Um, I, I can say a lot here, but probably I'll break it into parts. Talking about caps, um, and, and a lot of this has to do with the... When you've got a fork, you've got essentially three, usually three verbs, but the leftmost tine in the fork uh, in J can be a noun as well, or it can be a cap, which is a verb that terminates. And what happens when you have a verb that terminates, doesn't return anything, is that now your right tine, which processes the argument coming in, is just fed to your middle tine. There's no input from the left tine. So that's how, J you can use these caps to separate when you're feeding from one verb to another and you, you don't want to have input from the other side, you use a cap to do that. You can only do that from the left side. So what ends up happening when you're looking at a string of J that's written this way is you'll see verb, verb, cap, uh, verb, cap, verb, cap, verb, cap. And that means the middle verbs are all getting processed um, uh Left, uh, right to left, and it's just sequentially adding this cap just basically stops that that left end input from coming in, and then you move on to the next verb that's going to be applied to your result, um, which sounds complicated, but the alternative is, I think it's, I can't remember, separate between at and atop, 
but essentially it's a conjunction that will join two verbs together and it goes in between the two verbs. So in the case of cap at the end, it's like you've got verb, verb, cap, um, but in the case of uh, a top or at, whichever is appropriate, um, you've got them in between. So it's a bit more like a, um, I guess, a, a verb that's working between two arguments. And some people find it easier one way and some people find it easier the other. I've actually started to find it easier to read using the cap process, but there are certainly times that that actually doesn't work because the uh, the atop or the at in the middle can do things that the uh, cap won't do. You have to do a lot of things with rank to make cap do the same thing. So that's the short version of just the cap part of that fork, and I'll let uh, Adam, Stephen, or yourself respond to that before we move into what I like about hooks. EQN has something similar. It's called nothing, I think, uh, which is just a tiny little dot, but it serves exactly the same purpose um, of filling the left slot of the three in the fork but i think i think we should step one step back and make it a little bit more clear what exactly is a fork i don't think any of us really stated clearly what it is well you can you can state it yes I've, i agree we have not actually stated what a fork is uh i i stated what there are six different names for it across different <laughs> languages and stuff but yeah it's a good call okay so so what we call a fork it's it's more like a trident is it would be a more precise name or it's a fish fork that only has three tines on it three tips on it um and the idea is uh, you can really apply it two different ways the overall fork which forms a derived function um you can apply it to a single argument or you can apply it to two arguments the common idea between them is that the two outer functions the rightmost and the leftmost one are applied first to the single argument or to both arguments. And the results from those two function applications are then used as arguments to the middle function. So the middle function always is a function that takes two arguments. So I think maybe easiest to give an example of this, a very simple example of a, a monadic fork um, would be what we would read as max minus min. So let's say the argument is a list of, of numbers. And so the outer functions are the max function, which would be in API languages, a, a maximum reduction and, uh, and a minimum reduction. So they find respectively the greatest element and the, the smallest element. And then you subtract the result of the maximum reduction uh, and minus the result of the minimum reduction. That gives us the largest minus the smallest that's the total range, the span that all these numbers fall in. Um, this, is how, this is how it works. For a, a dyadic application, it could be something very similar. Um, a neat little one is an alternative to the traditional mathematical notation of plus minus. We have like a little plus stacked on top of a minus. So you could have uh, three functions. The outer functions is a plus on the one side and a minus on the other side. And then, uh, in the middle, you have a function that combines the results. Could be as simple as concatenation. So what happens is that there are two arguments now. The plus is applied between the two arguments. That gives us the sum. And the minus is applied between those two arguments. That gives us the difference. And then we combine those two results together. So the, the two results, the sum and the, and the difference, are the arguments to the concatenation. And this gives us essentially plus minus. So we get two results now instead of a single result. 
And now the problem is sometimes you actually don't want to apply two functions and have their results combined by a third middle function. Sometimes you just want to apply functions in sequence. So it could either be uh, that you want to apply a single function on a single argument and then another function to the result of that first application. Or it could be that you apply a single argument to two other arguments and then you apply a single function with a single uh, that takes a single argument to the result of that. And that's where uh, there are differences between APL languages. Uh, so we call these sequences of functions trains or phrasal forms is actually what Iverson called them originally. Um, and we all agree what happens when there are three functions in a row. We apply the outer functions and then the results are gathered and combined with the middle function. If there are only two functions in a row, how exactly should we look at it? Right? So, so how can we fit into this pattern of this trident, this fork, the idea that you only really want two? So we want a filler uh, thing, something that takes up a slot out of the three and leaves only the two slots to actually be active. And Jay solves this with, Bob called it a function, but it really isn't because if you try to use this function, it fails. It will fail on any argument you give it. So it is special syntax. It's special syntax that fills up the leftmost slot. And by way of that, uh, leaves only two other slots. In the APLs that support trains, uh, they say that you can simply omit the left function. Uh, so you only have two in the sequence. And that applies one function after another. Now, why doesn't J do that? Because J uses this, the syntax of two sequential functions for something else. And that's the hook. Interesting. So really, cap is implicit. So that makes a lot of sense, actually. Cap is implicit in APL because we don't have some special form for uh, a two, two characters um, or two functions, which is hook and J, but doesn't exist in APL. So then APL has to do something else to get the functionality, the passing around of arguments to the functions that you have in a, in a hook. I'm sure Bob will speak about what the hook does, but that you can express in a different way uh, in, in APL, whereas J must have either uh, that special syntax, or as, he's, as Bob said, uh, you can use a, a combinator, a conjunction to bind together two functions so that they actually only become one. But there is no way in J other than using a special syntax to just have adjacent functions be applied sequentially. At least tacitly. You can do that explicitly, but not tacitly. Explicitly, yeah, of course. So moving on to hooks. Um, and, but just before I go to hooks, that left tine, which can be a cap and... Adam did a great job of explaining how J or how array languages use those tines. Um, the left tine is really important because in J, I'm not sure whether this is true in in uh, in APL as well, but in J, the left tine can also just be a constant. It can be a, a, a noun, and that it's it's one of those things that allows you a bit more freedom. You don't actually have to go in in in. Previously, in the, in the, when I first started out with J, you couldn't do that. You would actually need to create a constant verb that would always return a constant in, in your uh, leftmost time. But 
soon after I started in J, they brought in the noun verb verb form where the noun, you can just put a noun in that leftmost time. And now it's just the argument that comes into the, that, that center time. Um, and that's really useful. But if you take it one step further, you actually remove it completely and you get a hook. And the thing I really like about hooks is unlike forks, which are symmetric, hooks are asymmetric. So they don't process arguments symmetrically anymore. You've got two verbs now. Your center, what was your center verb is now just the leftmost verb and your rightmost verb remains your rightmost verb. Now what's happening is your rightmost verb is the only verb that is processing your argument in terms of the left argument or your right argument. So it's the only one that's touching the right argument. And that in turn is fed into the left verb. And now what's coming on the other side of it? Well, if it's a monadic argument in J, you actually end up copying your uh, original argument to both sides. And that's really useful because now what you can do is your right argument can actually be like a filter, for instance. You can apply it to your original argument, end up with a Boolean string saying whether things are positive or negative. You Are you going to keep them or not? And then you can just put a copy and then again to put a passive on it, the, the tilde operation, so that now you're reversing the two and essentially you've created this Boolean array and you're applying it to your original array because now you've reversed the two and now you've filtered everything out. And you've just done it with two verbs within parentheses and the argument that you supply it. And I think that's just beautiful. This is where I have to jump in. I mean, I think that's, that's ridiculous, frankly. Because the only thing you're saying here is, and by the way, you only spoke about the monadic hook. It only takes one argument. It gets even worse when it's dyadic. So in the monadic form, what you're saying is we have two functions next to each other. The rightmost function is applied as a single argument, the one argument you're giving this overall derived function. The, the left function, which kind of is a middle function, is applied with two arguments. One argument is the result of that first function application. And the other argument is the original argument. How did it even end up there? So what's happening really is there's an implicit identity function. If we look at it in the framework of the, of the three-time fork, on one side, we have the monadic function application. And the other side, you're passing in the original argument. And in tested programming, the original argument is the identity function. So we can see clearly that the hook is nothing but the normal fork where the left tine is the identity function. Yeah, in the monadic case, you can certainly look at it that way, for sure, yeah. I mean, I want to jump in here. So so I I mean, I understand what's being said here, but like the, I agree when Bob said that it's very beautiful because it is such a common pattern in APL because so many of the verbs and functions take masks. It's not just filters. It's partitions. Like there's so many functions that where it's dyadic and the left one is a mask. Um, so I, I completely agree. For, hook is just a specialization of fork where one of them is the identity. And sure, you might need to use commute or um, what was it called? Passive in, uh, in, in J in order, in, in order to orient them. Uh, but it is, it is a super, super common pattern. And 
I don't know, even even in the even in the example that I previously stated about taking the difference of elements that are K spaces away, like that's that's a hook. It's a it's an identity minus K minus one rotate. And so the identity there, like you could hook that and do the passive thing. So like even in the one example that I, I explicitly stated, that was actually a case where a hook could have been used. So I guess the question is, Adam, why, you know, you, you definitely think that hooks are overrated. Um, but are we losing something like Ken obviously put it in the language. So like what, what, what are we missing or, or what did he miss? Maybe I will not dare to say that Ken missed anything. That would be hubris. <laughs> <laughs> but his he wrote a paper together with with Gene McDonald, uh, called Phrasal Forms in '89. Yep. And when he introduces things there, he actually starts by introducing the hook, and then he introduces the fork. And he, as opposed to what APLers today do. He actually does use this language that Connor likes using. So he starts by saying, combinatorial logic, one of the most useful primitive combinators is designated by S. And Curry defines S and so on. And he keeps going. And, and it's true. There are lots of them. Like uh, It comes up all the time. And I do sometimes think about this. Okay, so it's all very nice, all these forks. But by far, most of the forks I would use, one of the two outer tines is an identity function which means it's either a hook or it's a reversed hook. Um, and there, there are lots, as you say, there could be a function that, that, that uh, computes some kind of um, mask, and then that's fed with the original data uh, to some kind of processing function. Um, if you looked at the plus minus, as I said before, that's for two arguments. But let's say you wanted plus minus on a single argument. That means you want the original concatenated with its negation. So there again, one of the two is an identity function, um, and and there are uh, there are loads of those. You could see whether is a matrix symmetric over its uh, its diagonal. That means you want to see does the matrix itself match its transpose. Again, one of them is an identity function. Um, is this a palindrome? That that is is the argument matching its reversal there's so many of those i tweeted that out in j once because it's what it's uh the minus colon uh pipe dot <laughs> or is that right something like that it's four characters two digraphs it's it's match reverse it's match reverse so the first the the right um the right verb is reverse, and then you're just matching it. And if they match, then it's a palindrome. Yeah, but it's a, like when you type it out, though, it was. It's like it just looks like absolute noise because it's a, it's a hyphen, a colon, a pipe, and a period. <laughs> you know, you know, it has a has a version of that that is itself a palindrome. Oh, really? <laughs> In APL, you can write a a palindromic a palindromic. Uh, tacit function which tests whether the argument is a palindrome and not only is it palindromic uh if you like reverse the characters but the characters themselves are mirror uh, symmetric vertically so you can actually look at it in the mirror and it will still work yeah that, that's and that's that's kind of cute um so i wasn't began by defining defining the hook and then he defines the fork and then he looks at how 
um, it is similar to things that you have in, in mathematics. The example that I usually bring up is uh, addition of functions. So you have f of x and g of x, and now you can write f plus g of x, which is f of x plus g of x. That's exactly what the fork is doing on a single argument. Um, and I think him taking it from some theory that had already been built up, it was just natural to write it up like this. But once it's implemented and you can play with it, and, it, and in a way that APL is very much like Lego blocks, you see these patterns, you get to know them, become familiar with these patterns. And that's when you see that the hook is just a special case of the fork where one time is an identity function. Um, so sure, building on existing mathematics is, is all great, but I think APL can rise higher than the shoulders it's standing on. And, we, and the fork, you see what happens in J, right? We needed the cap for things to make sense, which is in my, my opinion, I mean, I'm, I'm maybe a notational uh, extremist, and I want the absolute purity and I can't stand the cap because it's, it's, a, it's an abomination in my eyes. It's not, it's a function, but it's not a function. It's, uh, you get an error if you actually try to use it on its own. It's not, you can't reason about it. It's just well, something you have to get used to. Well, actually, and that's one of the uses it has is that it is actually, if you feed an argument to the cap on its own, it is a domain error. It is actually used that way when you're declaring functions so that if you didn't want a function, say, to work monadically, you put a cap in that position. So any argument coming in gives you a domain error. It's telling you, in that case, exactly what you want to know. Don't use monadic arguments here. Only use dyadic. And it's... it's <laughs> It's just abuse. If, if you define your own user-defined function that always errors, you can't use it in the same position. You can't take the cap and wrap it in your own, give it a name, wrap it into in, in, in braces and make it its own function. It's, it's not natural. Steven? I, I want to come back here to something Bob was saying earlier, which I really, really liked. Um, and this was going back to... Um, is tacit too far. And Bob was suggesting that people who are not raised as we were will be able to see further. Tacit may seem normal. And this is going right back to the thought of Newton's that Adam was just referring to. Stand on the soul. If I've seen further than other men, it's because I've stood on the shoulder of giants. This, um, I'm talking to. So, so if, if that goes, then the forms that we find difficult and struggle with, other people will in the future see more uses for, will see more that they can do, they'll see further than, than we have. And I'm going to call this project the adventure. And the adventure is about finding where this goes. And I'd say the APL, the Iversonian languages are not the only ones. We're seeing increased levels of abstraction in other programming technologies. But where they're arguably led by developers saying, oh, we could, I'm getting sick of doing this over and over again. Is there some higher abstraction I can use for what I'm doing? I would argue that um, Ken's line is kind of mathematics led. 
um, it's led to a pattern I think I've seen where the implementers and, and language designers kind of see this is possible, hand it over to the developers, see what you can do with it. And sometimes it's left us feeling quite puzzled. It's like, here's an apparently very powerful looking tool, but we're not sure what we're supposed to do with it. And the truth is, I think that the people who put it in our hands didn't know what we're supposed to do with it either, only that it seemed like a next step. I was talking with Whitney about this a couple of, a couple of years ago, and the um, uh, specifically about the uses of arrays for reduction. So coming from an APL background, um, I'm used to reducing arrays and functions are what I reduce arrays with. But in Q and in K, I can use, there's a kind of fundamental um, principle behind them that um, fu there's functions and arrays are kind of the same things. So you can use a matrix to reduce a list because you can think of a matrix as um, in some ways like a binary function. It's got two indexes. The syntax of, of K and Q allows you to apply it um, using the same notation as you would use to apply a function. Um, and it turns out that if your matrix can be thought of as, re as representing a finite state machine, you can use it to reduce a list, um, which produces some interesting things. So I, I was talking with Whitney about this and he commented, he said, I'm a pretty good vector programmer, but the stuff to do with matrices, I've probably never really looked at or thought or thought about but I can imagine people who've been brought up with this language will go much further than I can. So that's my, that's my concept of the adventure, several decades into the project, putting it out there. Bob, Adam, thoughts? Need a moment of silence. Let it sink in. <laughs> a moment. Um, it's an adventure. <laughs> No, I, I think I think there is a lot of truth to that. Um, as people, as I've become more used to some of these things, they you see ways that they can be used. Um, it's, and again, I'm I'm projecting a a physical meat space, you know, my physical space, on the way I use tools physically to what I'm mentally doing a lot of times. And I, I'm not sure whether that's a good approach, like that's a good cognitive approach. But what I do find is that when I notice something and I start to use it mentally, it's, it is like a muscle. I start to use it more. I see more opportunities. I see, I use it more that way. I see other ways to use it. It, it starts to, I, I, it, it's a tool that I use in that form. Now, whether or not thinking about mental constructs in that physical way is right. It is something that I have noticed about the way my mind works. That's really, I just had this like uh, metaphor pop into my head while you were saying that, Bob, of um, like, and this ties back to the APL, it's, you know, what you were saying earlier, Stephen, when you were talking with Ken, people constantly say that APL is hard to read. Com combining when you were saying that and what Bob was just saying, I was, I was, because I, I happened to, uh, UTM, this is totally random, but UTMB, which is like the uh, mecca of ultra running, just happened over the last week. Um, it's a 170-kilometer race. Anyways, I'm a big runner, so I was pretty jazzed by it and ended up watching 
um, some Elliot Kipchoge, who's the individual that ran the sub two hour, hour marathon. There's a movie coming out about him. Anyways, so I, <laughs> I happen to be thinking of Elliot Kipchoge, who's, you know, world's fastest marathon runner. If you're trying to run with him, probably your response is going to be like, it's way too hard to keep up with this guy. Um, he's way too fast. But he's also like a god amongst men when it comes – or, you know, a god amongst people because he's, he's just so fast. You know, he's trained his whole life to do this one thing, and he's the best in the world at it. And, and there's this analog of, you know, sure, we don't want we, – I guess we all shouldn't be aiming to be Elliot Kipchoge because that's – it's not going to happen. But if we start to train so that we can run faster uh, – that like you prefer to move faster and, and the the analog is is thinking thinking faster and being able to do more with your mind um and is that like at a certain point if you get to this certain level where you no longer have a team of people that can keep up with you is that like a bad thing or should we be trying to really build systems where we can train people to read these array languages, read tacit form so that we can all run and think at this, like we're not run, we're using the, you know, mental metaphor now. Uh, you know, we can, we can, you know, it's a tool for thought. You can think at this higher level. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think there's definitely something there that, uh, yes, it is, it is difficult, but it's, I think Stephen, you were the one that said earlier, it is worth the time to study um, because there's so much more in a single line. Yes. It's going to take longer to read that line. Um, but with time, it actually won't be that difficult. And the amount of time that you're going to spend reading, you know, five lines of APL or J or K is going to be uh, per, you know, concept, you know, you're going to be able to read and understand that piece of code faster and more comprehensively than you will be, you know, where you're skipping through three different files that are each 100 lines long um, because you can't even fit it all on one screen. So then you got to cache that stuff in your brain and keep track of what's going on. I don't know. There's definitely something... Something there, Bob. Well, to complete your running met- metaphor, um, I'm not sure whether they went under two hours, but for a number of years, the fastest marathoner was a wheelchair athlete. I did not know that at all. Um, yeah. I mean, a part of that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> well, wheels um, work. But that's still, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that is, uh, yeah, there's something there to add to the, to the, to the metaphor there is. Um, yeah, that's also extremely impressive. Uh, I believe it was Rick Hansen, but I'm not sure whether he retained that speed. I'm not, I don't know whether he broke to two hours, but I know for a number of years he was the fastest marathoner. Wow. Yeah, Canadian. Go Canada. I guess if my adventure metaphor has got, um, has got legs, so to speak, it's partly in acknowledging that we don't know where this is going. As an analogy here with mathematics that I see, I mean, some math is done to solve a real world problem. Got a difficult problem and we need to do some original math to solve it. But a lot of it is like sex. It's like we know that there are results, but that's not why we do it. All right. That's uh, that's probably probably a pretty good way to start to start to wrap up. I think we are past the hour mark. Um, there are two things, though, that I, I just want to briefly want to mention in case people are well, three things, actually, now that I think about it. So one. You mentioned the 89 phrasal forms paper. It's my favorite paper in APL that I've come across. Uh, we definitely got to add that to the show notes. Um, I mentioned that Tickle, the Tickle blog was the first place that I got the confirmation, but uh, the 89 phrasal forms paper uh, was where I actually got like the 1,000% uh, 
because Iverson was explicitly saying, oh, yeah, this is uh, this is the S combinator um, from combinatory logic. And I was like, ah, I knew it. I knew it. Because uh, um, I think actually one time I showed up at the uh, British APL uh, webinar and I asked a room full of folks, like, is, are these the same things? And um, the response was, no, like Iverson just he came up with this. Uh, and I was like, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, so that's the first thing. We'll throw that in the show notes. Uh, second thing is I mentioned Starling and Phoenix at one point. Um, all of these combinators uh, have these bird names that come from a book called Tamaka Mockingbird. Um, and like it's even the identity uh, tine that we've been talking about. So that's uh, known as uh, depends on the list of birds. Some call it the idiot bird, which is from like some BBC program that was way before my time. Uh, I think it's in some people uh, don't like that. So they just they just call it identity. But like um, left and right, which are the overloaded dyadic versions of um, identity and APL. um, Those are called like Kestrel and Kite. Uh, The hook is Starling. uh, The fork is either Starling Prime or the Phoenix Um, flip that we mentioned earlier is Cardinal. I'm not an expert in all these things, and I haven't even read the book. I just think it's cute that all these uh, combinators have bird names, and I tweet them out every once in a while. It's something I wanted to do for a long time since I heard you speaking about these, is to go through them because I, I they're always written in like Haskell or something. I, I can't read that stuff, and and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what did they say? APL is unreadable. But anyway, uh, I would love for somebody who actually understands it and can explain it to me in like mortal language. And to go through it with me and I'd write down the equivalent in APL if I can and like make a, a dictionary of this bird names and what they are in APL. I think Marshall uh, Lockbaum of uh, BQN that we had on, um, he did that once. Uh, he, he found the list and then on Apple Orchard, maybe we can find it by searching. He, he listed out all of the combinators that existed in BQN. Um, so yeah, maybe we can do the same thing with APL at some point. Um, but yeah, the, the the last thing I'll say, and and then I'll open it up if there's last comments people want to make, is that we haven't even gotten to this, so we'll, we'll definitely have to do part two, part three of this. Maybe we'll bring on other folks that have um, you know differing opinions of whether it's tacit till we die or what do they tacit all the things, um, or you know uh, I don't believe in tacit programming. I have in the back of my mind um, a not a theory, but an idea that there is something more than it's just like what do you prefer is it a you know it enables you to think more powerfully or it's more readable or more beautiful that um using these combinators in a way you could it can enable a compiler to optimize way more aggressively certain pieces of code based on that. Um, and this comes from having written the solution to Cadane's algorithm, which I will save it for another episode, but basically you end up with a fork that is, um, it's basically right uh, maximum plus. So you, in Cadane's algorithm, you end up basically doing this running sum but you always want to make sure that uh, you're resetting effectively your running sum if it gets negative. Um, and you can do that with either zero max plus or write max plus. And because we know that if we were to create a language or a compiler that could identify that uh, certain operations are associative and commutative, some of them are only associative, some of them are only commutative, and you have basically a scan followed by a reduction, I am almost positive you can write a compiler that can see through all of that and then 
compile that down using basically like graph compiler techniques to a single parallel reduction um, that like either compiles down to a uh, both associative and commutative reduction or just a, you know, one or the other. Um, so if you have all flavors of the reductions, you, you can see all the operators that are being used are primitives in the language, and those are all tagged with the associativity and commutativity of them. You can end up with like what would potentially be like the fastest language in the world um, because of the fact that you can optimize it so aggressively. Uh, it's just a theory that I have in the back of my head. Um, I'm not sure if there's anyone doing like research out in the world on this. Uh, if you happen to be listening to this and you've had the same idea, please tweet at us or contact Bob and then he'll relay it to us. Adam, you were going to say something. Well, no, it ties into this. As you say, yeah, we definitely need a part two, maybe part three on this. Uh, but uh, something I usually call like black magic in Dialogs Interpreter is its ability to run certain functions in reverse. What that means is you can state a function and then you can use the power operator, which normally you tell it to apply this function five times or something, but you can tell it to apply this function a negative number of times. And it automatically, magically, if you want, figures out what the equivalent of this, of this function is in reverse, what the inverse is of this function. And that basically only works if the function you're trying to run backwards is tacit because it's so it's pure right there cannot be any side effects there cannot be any names or variables or anything that uh, or any uh, syntax that's ambiguous until runtime or anything like that it's all there all the information you need is present and that the interpreter has some rules internally for how to invert things and how to invert combinations of things and that's how it's able to do it um, so i i think you're right i think something can be done in that uh, in that area and I think what's exciting about that is that, so that's awesome that I didn't had no idea that that uh, precedent existed, is that, you know, it can be an uphill battle to convince folks that array programming languages are worth learning, that it's a notation for a tool of thought. You get an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude more and your ability to think about shapes in your head and whatnot. If you, if you create an array language that is the fastest language in the world that can do aggressive you know, uh, compiler techniques that don't exist in any other language, it becomes less of a, hey, trying to convince people to, well, I'm running my code, you know, an order of magnitude faster than anything that currently exists out there. I mean, look into it if you want, but if you don't, that's fine. Uh, it's sort of like, then becomes this like secret weapon, I, which at one point is what I heard is that back in the day in the 70s and 80s, people didn't even want to tell people they were using APL because they thought it was such a, um, uh, what do they call it? Like a secret sauce or whatever that um, if, if you told them, then they would start doing it as well. And then you, you lose your competitive advantage. All right. Any last thoughts before we, uh, we, we pause on this and, and we'll, we'll, we'll come back with part two in the future. Uh, Cause I feel like there's, this is a deep rabbit hole. We definitely need to come back. I mean, we've done, we've spoken about forks, but not thoroughly. Bob went through the hook, but only the monadic hook. What about the dyadic hook? I mean, there's a whole there's a whole chapter right there. <laughs> and then what about the tops and all the yeah, other yeah, yeah. conjunctions that we haven't got to? And that's why Stephen has been so silent all this time, because he's just waiting for us to come to the tops. And that's where K comes in, because K does K, K does a tops galore, right? It does nothing but tops, a tops, basically. And so definitely another episode of this tacit.
Yeah, there's the whole um when we come back to this, let's let's come back with some, if possible, simple practical examples to help um stay with us, those of our listeners who for whom this is getting fairly abstract, gusting to quaint. Yeah, and we didn't even get to our favorite uh, that was right. We we're supposed to all bring our favorite uh our favorite um hooks or forks or you know tacit expressions um but maybe we should leave that for for last for for next episode because yeah we're we're a bit over now um but yeah like uh thanks everyone for listening uh as we mentioned at the beginning we'll have links for all of this plus the uh the j twitch uh, uh live stream for those that want to check that out and uh and if you do want to get in touch with us contact at arraycast.com we'll get you in touch with us and as Connor mentioned I get all the emails and stuff and I forward them onto the group as appropriate. So uh, fire away if you've got questions. <laughs> and uh, I guess uh, I think that's about all I've got. Uh, Raycast.com will have the show notes. It will have the transcripts. Uh, we all work at doing that. So when this runs, and if you do get a chance to check out uh, Tangent Storm on Twitch with the uh, the early morning J show or the ridiculously early J morning show... <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it'll be worth taking a look at from time to time. I, for me, it really is ridiculously earning early because I'm on the West Coast, and so that's five in the morning, and I, I don't think I'm getting up at five <laughs> in the morning to watch that. But uh, I'll watch it on YouTube afterwards. I think it's really neat. Yeah, and and feel free if you're listening and we dove way too quickly into the deep end. I absolutely love this conversation. That being said, though, I have been thinking about this and staring at it for a year, uh, so potentially. Uh, this might have been we we might have do, uh, dove into the we dived in dove it in uh, whatever we went into the deep end <laughs> way too quickly so yeah feel free to leave us feedback and if we want us to slow down next time we definitely can um, but with that being said uh, we'll say happy array programming happy, happy array programming, programming.